thank you again, Linda, for all your work on that. Um, yeah. So if you want to turn to 1 Samuel 16 as we keep on going. 1 Samuel 20, I said 16, I meant 26. 26 kind of bookends this section of three chapters, 24, 25, and 26, that all center around the idea of David withholding vengeance. And so I thought this morning that my uh, sermon was going to be all about that, because I hadn't hit on it as much as I thought I should in the first two sermons. But every time I tried to work on that sermon, the... uh, I just kept hitting a roadblock. So <laughs> as we look at 1 Samuel 26, I think what we're going to see, the part of it is going to talk about vengeance, but I, I think the theme actually running through chapter 26 is, is godly faith. Four characteristics of godly faith is what we're going to see. I wonder what you see as the biggest challenge to Christianity today. I, I think a lot of people would answer that as, as a loss of belief in God around us, the secularizing of our culture. But then you think about that, and you think of the rise in surveys of the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, the, those who don't claim any particular religious identity. They, you, know, you get a, a list of what, what do you identify as, Christian, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, etc., etc., and then, no, none of the above, I'm a nun. And that group has gone from well under 10% to over a quarter of the American population, and it's much higher in my age group, in millennials, and I suppose it'll probably be higher yet in Gen Z, the the generation that's coming of age, Helen's generation. (laughs) But it's interesting that even with that rise, still, as recently as a a year or two ago, that's how a lot of this survey data works, there's a little bit of a lag, 65% of people in America claim to be some sort of Christian. And over 90% still claim to believe in God. So that means a huge percentage of these people who claim no particular religious affiliation, they still believe in some sort of higher power. The problem is not that there is no faith. The problem is that there's bad faith, wrong faith. It's uh, what conservative New York Times colonists, as much as that sounds like an oxymoron, a paradoxical statement, but it's not. Ross Douthat... He wrote a book on this called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. Um, and, and, and he describes how, how we went from having orthodox beliefs of various kinds, but consistent with like historic faiths. And we now kind of hodgepodge things together. It's what sociologist Christian Smith has called moralistic therapeutic deism. We've got, we've got these ideas about a God, and he, it's moralistic. He probably wants us to be pretty nice people. But it's also, at root, it's therapeutic. He probably wants me to feel good, right? And so I'm going to honor this higher power by doing what makes me feel good. That's how most people think. Even the person who claims no faith, even the person who claims to not believe in God, still has faith beliefs, things that they're taking without evidence. The idea that there is no God is something that you have to believe You just have to take that as a presupposition. What we need when we come to God's word is not to, and as we're communicating it to others, is not to convince people that there is something to believe. We all believe something. What we need is to have our faith shaped into a godly fashion, directed towards the right person. 
And so as we come to God's word and he shows us what godly faith is, he shows us who he is and thus what we ought to believe about him. And that forms our life, how that faith takes action. So again, as we come to 1 Samuel 26, I think we'll see four things we can learn about what godly faith is. The first thing we're going to do, though, is just look at the introduction to this chapter. Verses 1 through 5 says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. And what we see in this introduction to the chapter is that there are these massive parallels with that first story we read in chapter 24. The, first of all, the Ziphites are ratting out David again. You see that in, in the preface to chapter 24, back in chapter 23, verse 19, the Ziphites had gone to Saul. Verse 19 of 23, then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding out? among us in the strongholds of, at Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon. So he's in the same place, and the inhabitants of that region go to Saul again and say, hey, he's, he's here. You didn't catch him the first time, but you can try again. So, so that's a parallel. The second thing we see is that Saul also comes up once again with his group of 3,000 men. We see that in chapter 24 and verse 2. And David is in this same wilderness. But a key difference we note between chapters 24 and 26 is when the two meet, when, when David and Saul come together in chapter 24, it's, I mean, we know it's providential, but as you're reading the story, it seems to just be by happenstance. David's hiding out in the wilderness. Saul is chasing him, and Saul goes into the cave to go to the bathroom, and there's David and his men. I mean, Saul doesn't see them. It's dark. But it's just like this random meeting, right? Whereas here in chapter 26, David is taking the initiative. He, he hears that Saul is coming out into the wilderness, and so David sends spies out to confirm that he's coming. And then he goes down once he hears, okay, yeah, my spies have got, they've, Reconnoitered, they, they know where everything is, and they go out and they scout out where is the army and where is Saul in relation to the rest of his army. He's there set up in the middle with Abner. And when they lie down, David knows exactly where Saul is. The first thing we're going to see, first characteristic of godly faith in verses 6 through 12, is that godly faith withholds vengeance. Godly faith withholds vengeance. So there's, there's that theme coming through. Then David said to Abimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother, Abishai the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck 
in the ground. At his head, and Abner the arm, and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die in battle, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So, so David plans to go in and, and attack attack, right? Go in and, and see what's up in the middle of Saul's camp. And he's talking to these two guys, Ahimelech the Hittite, who is probably some kind of uh, mercenary that's come over to David's side. He's not a, an Israelite, he's a Hittite. And then it says, Joab's brother Abishai, or Abishai, or however you say his name, the son of Zeruiah. And I was wondering, like, who is Zeruiah? I should know who that is. Well, it's David's sister. So Abishai is David's nephew and so his his nephew volunteers he's like oh yeah now we've we've got a shot we can go in here and take care of Saul this is like this is going to be exciting right and they go in at night and you just like you you think of I don't know if you watch like commando movies I don't watch a lot of those kind of movies (laughs) because I don't watch a lot of movies but but you think like those special forces guys that go through all that advanced training and they're they're like top notch Navy SEALs, U.S. Army Green Berets. Like you think of the the best of the best. And this is like these two guys here. They're sneaking in. They're getting past the sentries. They're crawling through this entire army. Three thousand chosen men. So like twice the population of Remsen, but all primo soldiers. And these two guys are sneaking in past all of them to get to the center of the camp. Where, Dave, or where Saul and Abner are asleep. And Abishai, they get there, and he's like, oh, there's the spear. There's the spear. And, and you sense as you're reading this, Abishai might not catch this irony, but you, you can, I'm sure the author of 1 Samuel does, that, that he says, and I'm not going to, let me, let me stab him with the spear, and I won't have to strike him twice. And this spear is the same spear, probably, that Saul has twice thrown at David. And what irony there would be in the story if this, store, this, this spear that Saul has tried to murder David with twice now gets used to kill Saul himself. Like, that, it would just be that sweet ending to the story if you're writing an adventure novel and, like, the, the bad guy gets it with his own weapon. You're like, yes! And that's in our flesh what we want to happen, right? We want the bad guy to get his. And David says, no, no, that's, that's not what we're here for. How, how could we lift our hand against the Lord's anointed, verse 9, and be guiltless? How could you put out your hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David understands that to take one's own vengeance particularly against the Lord's anointed, would be to incur blood guilt. It seems that he has learned the lesson from the previous chapter, right? I mean, we, 
he knows this about the Lord's anointed in general. He, he, we saw that in chapter 24 where he has an immense amount of restraint, chooses not to kill Saul there in the cave. But he sees in, in the incident with Nabal that, that to take vengeance at all is wrong. Chapter 25, verses 38 and 39. I, th- I think we also see that, that David is learning he can trust the Lord to take vengeance for him. So this is after Abigail's come out and she's talked David down off the ledge and he, does, he doesn't attack Nabal. Verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And that same idea is what we see in verse 11, where in trying to talk Abishai down, I really need to pick just one way to say that and stick with it, and I can't do it. I I vacillate between Abishai and Abishai. Uh, Verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Verse 10, David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Now it's interesting, David doesn't know which of these is going to happen. He doesn't know if it's going to be some sovereign divine act like happened to Nabal. God strikes him with a stroke or strikes him with a heart attack and he dies early. Or maybe Saul's going to go down to battle and die, which we know further on in the story is exactly what happens. Or maybe it's just going to come his day. He's going to get old and he's going to die. And in any case, God will remove him when it is time for that to happen. I, I don't have to lift up my hand to take vengeance. God will do that for me. David doesn't know how God will deliver him from Saul. He doesn't know that. He has no idea when it's going to happen. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. But he knows that God will deliver him from Saul. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, he he notes that, that David here is able to imagine different ways that God will deliver him. He doesn't put God in a box and say, well, I know exactly how God's going to do this. He, does, he doesn't try to say God has to act in such and such a way. But he's able to think through, well, here's at least three different ways God could deliver me from Saul. And, and what Davis goes on to point out in his commentary is that we could all use that kind of imagination. It's really easy to sit and look at the circumstances of our life, good, bad, or indifferent, and start imagining all the ways that things can go wrong. Or to look at the negatives and think about how those are going to be the things that are most important. I mean, David could look at his life right here and say, man, he's been pursuing me for three years, and if I don't do something now, how is it ever going to get better? If I don't take it into my own hands, if I don't strike him with a spear myself or have my henchmen do it, how is it ever going to get fixed? But because he has the imaginative ability to say, no, there's all kinds of ways God could take care of this. He has a trust in God that allows him to imagine a better future. And, and Davis just points out, like, we could use some godly imagination in that way to look at the circumstances around us and think, what could God do? What could he do? What could he change? 
I don't, I don't have any power to control God or tell him how he could change it. But can I just like stop for a minute and think? There's a lot of cool things God could do. What could God do in this town? What could God do in growing our faith and in saving people around us? How could he do that? Boy, that, that kind of thought process is what fuels our prayers, isn't it? Like to, to think about what he can do and pray, God, do it. Or do something better, <laughs> like feel free. <laughs> and, and give me faith to know that you in your time will do what is best. We, we so often just look at things as they are right now and think that's what is determinative of reality. But God's got a perspective that's way beyond ours. You know, you, you think of uh, Elisha and his servant where the servant can't see the invisible army that God has. And we're... We're stuck looking on facts so often, but the facts are just what we, with our dull, limited human eyes, can see. David can imagine how God is going to save him, and he knows that he will. I wonder how you imagine the world to be. I appreciated what Keith was saying about stories. You know, as human beings made in the image of of a God who has told a story, a story that is the world, like, this whole world is God's story. Uh, the theologian John Calvin, he, he talked about how, how the world is a theater. It's God's theater where he's displaying his glory, and we, we get to be actors in, the, in this play. But the world, as, as those who, who tell stories, as those made in the image of God, all human beings are telling stories, and we're believing stories. And we're all being fed stories constantly. So if you watch television commercials, commercials, effective commercials are stories where they get you to believe that to be part of this crowd that I want to be in, well, I need this product. You know, that, that, that is the, that, that's the idea of like a BMW commercial. If you want to be this stylish put together person well here's how you do it you just step into your nearest bmw dealership if you want to be the person who has fun and enjoys their life all you've got to do is go down and buy a half rack of bud light like that's that's what the commercial is telling you and if you open up instagram or facebook like you look at the the stylized photos and you're like that person's life is put together and if my life looked like that then i would be happy then i would be fulfilled it it's the the political story that if that person gets elected the world ends or if that person gets elected the world is great like we buy into all of these different kinds of stories that we're being fed constantly the the cross (laughs) i liked oh man this was clever and i just I butchered it because I already used Bud Light. I was like, the CrossFit or Bud Light's salvation via six-pack. There's different six-packs. Sorry. That was my one joke I had in here, and I thought it was funny. Uh, maybe it will land later, and, and it'll be funny. David, David's leaning into a story, isn't he? He's leaning into a story where God is in control and where God has him in the palm of his hand. It's a Romans 8.28 story where everything, even a crazed king who wants to kill him, 
is working together for his good. And God's got the solution, even if David can't see it yet. And it's only in that kind of story where not taking revenge makes sense. It's only, it's only in a book where there's Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that Romans 12.19 makes sense. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. They only make sense together. God does protect David. We see that in verse, even in this instance, verse 12. The only reason these two guys are able to sneak into a camp and then have an argument and nobody wakes up is because God has supernaturally given them a great night's sleep. (laughs) No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. God does protect David. Who provides Saul's safety? Who provides Saul's safety? Well, apparently nobody, because in verse 12, David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. The water that Saul needs for life in the desert just got robbed. The spear that Saul's depending on to be his personal protection his and his offensive weapon, it's... it's We'll come back to the spear. But it's gone. It just got taken. So so godly faith never avenges itself. The second thing we see about godly faith is that it looks to God for safety. Verses 13 through 16. David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. So David puts distance between himself and the army. He gets over on the other side. There's a great gulf between them. We see that at the end of verse 13. And you can imagine when he starts screaming back at them, Abner's kind of coming out of this deep sleep. Who is yelling for the king? Who's yelling for the king? No, nobody's yelling for the king. I'm calling to you, Abner. That's who David's yelling at is Abner. And as they yell back and forth, Saul apparently comes awake too and recognizes David's voice. But David calls Abner out and the whole army. You don't see this necessarily in English, although you can piece it together. Uh, but in verse 16, the first you, as he's, David is speaking to Abner, is singular. He says this, what you, you, Abner, have done is not good. But then as he indicts Abner, he's actually indicting the whole army as the Lord lives, you and the yous from here on out in verse 16 are plural. He's not just talking about Abner. He's talking about the whole army that was supposed to be protecting Saul. You all deserve to die because you all have not kept watch over your Lord. 
while two guys came in and stole his spear and stole his water and could have pinned him to the ground. You all should have been protecting Saul, and instead you did not. You have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. David calls them out, tells them that they deserve to die, and the spear, which, which David and Abishai have taken, it was Saul's constant companion. We see Saul referenced to having his spear with him in chapters 18, 19, 20, 22, and here in chapter 26, his spear is mentioned six times. It's one of the dominant words in this chapter is spear. And this thing on which Saul so much depended, he had it in his hand all the time, he's ready to hurl it at David when he got mad at David. When In chapter 18, he's sitting under the tree, moping. He's sitting there just clutching his spear. It's been removed, and now he is helpless. Saul is utterly helpless before David. I wonder where you look for safety. Saul was clutching his spear throughout his life. There's a temptation to know that I personally can't fight for my own vengeance. Like that first point, godly faith doesn't cling, doesn't, doesn't reach for vengeance. But sometimes we think, but maybe somebody else could do it for me. You see this, this is really obvious in little kids. Like, I know I can't hit them for hitting me, but I could say to my sibling to hit them for hitting me. Uh, <clears throat> not that an oldest sibling would ever do something like that. Uh, we all can, can look to things that are not God to provide us with our safety and to people that are not God to provide us with our safety. And that's a dangerous place to be. Saul's spear fails him. His army fails him. The only safety, the only protection that will not fail you is God himself. The Lord, our rock and redeemer, Psalm 19:14 calls him. The third thing that we see about godly faith is that it wants to worship. Verses 17 to 20. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the lord, for they have driven me out this day, and I have should have no share, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek like a single, seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. So David, his voice is recognized by Saul there in verse 17, and Saul cries out, Is this your, is this your voice, my son David, my son? David launches into a clear defense in verses 18 and 19. First of all, saying, I have not done anything wrong. I do not deserve the way you are treating me. And secondly, he says, if I have done something wrong to deserve this, 
Let's just talk to God about it. I'll take a sacrifice to God. I'm more than happy to clear that up. But if men have stirred you up against me, it's interesting here, David never actually just accuses Saul of, maybe you're just jealous, which we know is exactly what's going on. But, but David doesn't say that. He says, if men have stirred you up against me, may they be cursed. May they be cursed. And why does David feel so strongly? Why is he so upset that he's been driven out from Israel, that he has to live in the wilderness and now is going to end up being pursued even into other countries. He's had to flee into to the land of the Philistines before. He's gone down into Moab before, and, and he will end up back with the Philistines. Why is he so upset about this? They've driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. And there was this idea at that time that that wherever you were, you served the gods of that region. And so the god of the region of the Hebrews was Yahweh. Now, David knows that, that God, Yahweh, is the one true God, right? And he doesn't have to be in a certain location to worship him. Right? We see that in Psalm 63, where he says, My soul clings to you. Well, your soul clinging to God isn't dependent on a physical location, right? David knows that. He, he knows that if he goes to, to be with the Philistines, that he doesn't have to cling on to Dagon, who is not much of a god. He knows that. He's not going to start worshiping false gods. But David also senses something that I think we probably don't sense as strongly. It, it, certainly not in our society, and I, I fear even less so for a lot of folks post-COVID, is we separate the idea of worshiping God from being with the people of God. David doesn't have that separation in his mind. If you look at Psalm 63, I just want to look at a couple examples of this, and it's all over the Psalms. Psalm 63 and verse 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. While, while worshiping God, in some senses, is something that we should be doing with all of our life, right? There is a sense in which we come together to worship God, and it's not tied to a particular physical location any longer. Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 4, speaking to the woman at the well. She's asked him whether they're supposed to worship on the mountain where they're standing in this conversation, or if they're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So it's not tied to a particular physical location. Nonetheless, 
it is interesting how often the New Testament authors will pick up the language of temple or tabernacle and apply it not to a physical building, not to a church building, quote-unquote, but to the people. You see that with Paul in 1 Corinthians, and you see it in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he's speaking to believers. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And earlier on in that same chapter, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house a holy, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There, there is a sense in, in First or yeah, First Corinthians, where Paul talks about the individual believer being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But then earlier on in First Corinthians, I believe it's chapter three, Paul talks about the church corporately being the temple of the Spirit, where we come together and worship God, and that is, it is something we need. It's not optional. Hebrews eleven or. 10 makes it clear that it's not an optional part of our faith. David, David is distressed because he and his, the men with him are cut off from the worshiping community at Jerusalem. Not at Jerusalem at that point. It's wherever the tabernacle is at that point. That's going to be at Jerusalem. And he knows that to be cut off from the worshiping community is to be cut off from a central part of their practical experience of God in this life. Now, it's like, just make that super plain English. That's what gathering together is all about, is we gather together to worship him as a people, not just as a collection of individuals, but as a people, as one body, we come together and we lift our voices and we hear from him together. We're shaped by him together. It's a central part of what it means to be a believer in the New Testament age is, is that we are part of the church. David is upset that he's being pushed out of the worshiping community and I fear so many Christians today just cut themselves off from it and think that nothing bad's going to happen because of it. We desperately need one another. Fourth and final thing, godly faith, and this is very similar to point two, but godly faith rests in God alone. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is your, the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put you out, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. We see in verse 21 that Saul appears to be repentant, but we've seen crocodile tears from this man before. And David doesn't even appear to respond to that confession. He just says, here's the spear, send somebody over to get it. But in verse 23, I think it's interesting, David's response, he, he notes that, that God will reward every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Now, we know from Romans 3.20 that by works of the law, no man is made righteous. Our doing good things doesn't make us right with God. It won't earn us right standing with God. Nonetheless, righteousness and faithfulness are always rewarded by God. They don't earn us anything from him, but he in his kindness and his graciousness will always reward them. We don't have time to turn there, but right, if you're taking notes, Hebrews 6.10. Hebrews 6.10 is one of those verses, I don't know how many times I've read Hebrews in my life. I didn't notice it until earlier this year. I was reading Hebrews, and, and that verse just struck me and has been so precious to me. Do you... Do you fear that living for Christ, that withholding vengeance, that prioritizing worship over other things in life won't prove to be worth it in the end? That's a temptation for us, right? To, to look at the good, the good that we know. I was talking to Gloria yesterday, and she was reading in James, like the one who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it to him it is sin. Well, it's tempting to look at the good that we know we ought to do and think, yeah, but it's not going to pay off. It pays off. God is not unjust so as to overlook those things. Verse 24. It's a striking contrast here. He, David says, as your life was precious in my sight, he's speaking to Saul, you would think the next thing he said would say is, so may my life be precious in your sight. Like he's... Like you should be expecting something reciprocal. My life, your life was precious to me. May li- my life be precious to you. But instead what he says is, your life was precious to me. May my life be precious to God. Where is David's confidence? It's not in trying to fix Saul. He knows that either that's a lost cause or if it's not a lost cause, he can't do it. But he can trust God. He can trust God. Where are you looking for your safety? I have no idea what I wrote here. Who's good, whose good pleasure do you seek? Are you trying to, to get right with the people that have hurt you? Are you trying to change them so that they'll approve of you and like you? Are you trusting that God will take care of it? And then if you live your life for him, it will be worth it in the end. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that no matter what you call us to, what you call us into and through, where we all experience horrible, horrible, trying times in life. Either they're just the normal things of life where loved ones die or 
or we just go through a hard season of sickness or tiredness and feeling exhausted. And sometimes there, there are those acute pains where we have been betrayed, where we feel like, like no one cares, like no one loves us, like no one's there for us. Father, would you give us the faith to see how wrong that is? If God be for us, who can be against us? You didn't spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. How will you not then with him not graciously give us all things? You give us everything we need, and you promise us eternal life with you, peace right now, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to cling to you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.